Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Janine Leanne, a Radjuri poet, writer and academic. Author of the acclaimed novel Purple Threads, winner of the David Unipon Award, Leanne's poetry has also been widely awarded and commended across an extensive career as both a writer and a teacher. Her newest book, the poetry collection Garimara, Gathering, moves from deeply tender meditations on country, culture and kinship to experimental archival poems dissecting the violence and destruction of the settler colony. This special book is the result of decades of poetic, political and cultural work and reflection. I spoke with Janine Leanne to discuss this new work and hear her read from the collection. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Janine, congratulations on the new book. I really enjoyed reading it, as I did your previous work, especially Purple Threads. To start us off, can I ask where the inspiration for this book came from? And do you have hopes with this work? I called it Gathering, Gawi Mara, because it was, I was working a lot. Since I wrote Purple Threads, I was working a lot, you know, as a writer, as a researcher as well around that whole idea of gathering. We used to do a lot of gathering and when I was a child, which, you know, a lot of that was unconscious but it's something I kind of learned to articulate later on. I thought about that as a sustenance process and as, as something that particularly that women do. I use fiction as a medium, as a tool, in, a bit in the same way there with Purple Threads like Alexis Wright commented about her use of fiction as a way of really telling a story that's true, to just put this whole different cultural perspective on this really arbitrary and not particularly helpful, I don't think, binary around fiction, non-fiction anyway. God, what is a lot of national history? Fiction. As well as the literary value of all these works, hopefully my work, but also to think about people receiving these works too and thinking about the whole process of cultural load and cultural responsibility that goes into this kind of writing, as well as some sort of very beautiful and very, you know, hopefully quality literary artefact. There's a a whole lot of history and story in there as well. It goes beyond I guess, the literary and what settler people tend to expect literature to do, which is a lot, but there's a whole other layer to First Nations writing that goes beyond that. Yeah, definitely. In acknowledging Alexis Wright, perhaps the breaking down and moving between fiction and non-fiction, where it's hard to tell what is real or not, for lack of a better word, It's not so much the point just to experiment. It seems that it's a potent space for grappling with profound and uncomfortable truths, do you think? You're right. That's not the point. You said something really poignant and insightful there. You said, well, it's hard to tell in reading my work and many of these other works, like Alexis's work, Ellen's work, for example, where does the fiction stop and the nonfiction set in? And that in itself is a strong you know, testimony to the kind of seamlessness of it all. But, you know, much more importantly, that's not the point, as you said. It's a story and I think that as people, and certainly me as 
the child, we're used to storytelling and someone says that they'll tell you a story and you never say, well, is that true? There's a point, the story has a function and there's a whole kind of aspect to the telling of the story and the situatedness of whether is this true or is this not true becomes so highly irrelevant in all those other considerations of what you're being taught and told. First Nations writers and writing has really pushed the boundary of what literature and a literary canon can be in any landscape here and here is in particular and set the colonies like Australia and Turtle Island and Aotearoa, New Zealand. There are some very astute settler readers and academics. I really want to acknowledge that. But on the whole, I think we can see more broadly the kind of way we've changed the literary scene more than the people who are kind of entrenched in the literary scene in a way because there are a lot of critics reading some work and saying, I found this picture of Aboriginality really disappointing. Who are you to say this? Where are you getting your yardstick that makes you disappointed in this and who are you to apply it anyway? You know, you still get that kind of thing or someone who will write, I found this plot really unsatisfying because it doesn't wrap the same way as a classic pyramid kind of Western plot or it doesn't resolve that way, particularly around, you know, transitions in time to people will say, well, I couldn't work out where it was. Well, you just go with it. Perhaps it is you who can't work out where you are. You know, you still get critics who are taking that kind of, this is what a story should look like. I think you point to this in a certain way in your poem, The Historians, from this collection. That Historians poem, yeah, I, I watched that happen in what I wrote about in that poem and it's a confluence of two true historical events from watching what happened out at Mungo because, you know, it was big news all through the arena and all this big invasion of all those different people that I wrote about. So I was very young then, but I just remember what a lot of the old people were saying, particularly about the grave, you know, these big revelations about, wow, we found these bones and they're 60,000 years old. And my grandmother saying, it's a burial ground. It's a cemetery. I'm not sure what you expected. And also people told you people were there. Like what? One of my aunties said, imagine if we dug up St. Peter's or something. And then another time was out further west when I was just doing some volunteer work as a young adult when I was about 18 in a refuge over the university holidays like for women and children out between Burke and Bawarana. Yeah, there were archaeologists out there at the time saying what they thought that, you know, like they're discovering the Bawarana fish traps, which I don't know if you've seen the Bawarana fish traps, but they're quite ingenious freshwater river fish traps. I was a young adult at the time and I remember kind of actually baiting these people a bit, saying, well, why don't you talk to me? I'm a black fellow. I've been hanging around here. Why don't you talk? They don't, I want to talk to sort of older people or people that they feel they can, I might swindle in a way. And I'd say stuff like, well, okay, I'm not a local, fair enough, but, you know, there's a local Aboriginal teacher here and they're like, I haven't talked to her. She's, they may come up with excuses like she's too young or something, but it's like, no, she's as probably equally educated as you and she'd ask questions about your questions, all for the sake of Western research. 
So, yeah, I was just so glad that I did actually get the opportunity then to express that in a poem because these are the kind of things that I think I carried for a long time, a lot of these things, and then through writing found various mediums and ways to express them. I remember reading Evelyn Araluen describing your work, how you fold into your text the accrued knowledge and language from across different periods and to some extent reject the structuring of a more overtly Western literature. And it reminds me of the way that the aunties in your book, Purple Threads, do the same with knowledge and insight from ancient Roman and Greek philosophy folded into their very real and present situation. They gather it together. Yeah, like I think I learned from a very young age, you're right, I think it's probably what colonisation, slavery and things do long-term, particularly like the women because it is getting back to gathering and intuition. I mean people sometimes talk about women's intuition, which there is definitely an intuition there which is not necessarily biologically deterministically assigned to women but women develop it because that's the role that they have and they are used to seeing small things. Women observe these, firstly, the power of words and the reverence of paper and these documents. So that, you know, certainly influenced my family and generations of other families to try and access the reading and the writing. We were really quite respectful of the value of the power of words, you know, all words, our own as well. But then we got to understand, yes, they have all this much power, apparently, if you write them. Just other behaviours that the artists got to observe that are really important things. You have to know, like the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That's what Audre Lorde said. Mm. And then my auntie said, why would you want to live there anyway? Just take the tools and you build a better house. There is also sometimes a backlash, even within our communities, between people who seek out an education and people who don't. Or sometimes it could be seen as a bit treacherous, possibly assimilationist. I don't see it that way. I see it only as a way of being able to, like, access and work within and sort of get some sort of equality in a culture of otherwise ongoing inequity. One of the poems that I feel really tapped into this was Honey Gatherers. Why did you, what was it about honey gatherers that you particularly liked? I think um, fresh off rereading Purple Threads, it reminded me of some of the scenes from that book, which I understand is inspired by your own experiences growing up, that blurring of fiction and non-fiction. So it was a really handy introduction to this collection, which then goes on into many different places. So, yeah, and it is a day that I remember... So, yeah, I can read Honey Gatherers. Yeah, please, if you would. Thank you. On my seventh birthday, aunties woke me at dawn to gather sugar bag honey from a grove of blossoming urana trees growing thick on a high summit of a rocky hill beyond a fast-flowing creek beyond our home. A two-mile round trip we walked out in the purple October morning towards the blue peak of the tallest hill on Bathungra Range. Slung on a sturdy hip to cross the creek, the women bracing and giggling at the briskness of the spring water, placed on solid ground on the other side, 
I began to mount the ascent. And women walked through the sun to the hum of stingless bees, but the slope was too steep for my short step. And aunties laughed and swung my hand and sang and promised me gum blossoms, honey pods and sweet tea at the top. My little legs ached as I trudged in the shadow of their long strides all the way to the summit. Flopping down in the shade of the grove, I watched the women's hands plunge deep into the treasure trove trunks of yellow box gums to pull out gleaming brown combs of sugar bag honey, my mouth gaping like a fledgling as aunties placed honeycomb on my hungry tongue and each golden drop worked its spell through my baby teeth. And Arnie's sweet tea from tin mugs in the sun sucked amber nectar from dripping fingers, savouring the aftertaste that lingers long. And with sticky syrup dribbling down my chin and smearing my cheeks and tufting my hair, I ran anointed by golden balm chasing butterflies all the way down the slope without looking back. Hearing the auntie's steady step behind me, I waited on a rock throne by the creek for them to come and carry me across to the other side. Thank you, Janine. It's an almost utopian scene, I feel. I do really like that poem too. It's straight out of a memory and it is also just speaks to a number of things like security and alternative feminism that you get absorbed from a very, very young age. But it also shows extreme resilience. I think there's sometimes there's a danger of people out there just thinking, my goodness, Aboriginal people are sad all the time, serious all the time so downtrodden all the time and I think that I wanted to show that that is certainly not the case despite all else and certainly not in my life. And, I mean, you know, as far as defeats and things go, we've had a lot and people have spoken about more recently about the referendum, which was harrowing. But I guess if we kind of gave up after everything that was harrowing, I guess we would still not be here. That's, you know, another reason why I write and for this kind of resilience. And as an older writer, I think, too, for others to see it. Yeah, like your aunties in this poem, carrying you across to the other side, keeping that lineage going along. This world within a world, which was very much like Purple Threads as well. And there are poems in this collection that drift between English and traditional language, which feels special and pertinent considering the content, the imagery, but also that lineage. And the other thing that is so special about the language poems is that I was provided Wiradjuri interpretations, and we do say interpretations, not translations, by Arnie Elaine Lomas, a Trielda, and that in itself was very special. And, and you know, then just learning the language but developing that relationship, I was really honoured to be able to write a bio poem for Auntie Elaine in the book. 
which grew out of a project that I was, because of a lot of my work deals with memory, like one of my short pieces is there's no logic to what memory holds or releases or what will remain forever unfinished. And memory is the only thing that can hold an archive to account. Mm, That's a really strong sentiment and I appreciate that. Perhaps to illuminate this a little more, would you like to read another poem from the book? So I will read Ninga Gulia Nyanga. And bearing in mind, you I still feel like I speak Wiradjuri like a child, and that is also both liberating and also in some ways limiting. These words cry out and I hear them, learn to mould them and shape them like clay. There should have been a time for such words, for this word, Nyinga, Nyingyang, and a word for such a time, Guwayu. How clunky these are as I first stumble over them, grappling like the child I should have been when I first felt them. Nyingagali, Linia, sang them. Babiya spoke them. Yayi. Now my clumsy tongue struggles over each new syllable. My country, Nagambarang, gives me. Each one I want to devour like the sweetest thing. Will I bang? Gilad Dehiai. I ever tasted. I want to suck every shred of marrow. Damdiriba, from each solid sound, I want to swallow it whole. Dahara Mara, to know what it is to eat for the first time. I want to feel like the child born to these words. Gara, Durinya, Nigena, Nigeniyan. Thank you, Janine. And always acknowledging Arnie Elaine's interpretation of those poems, helping me with interpret those words and, and not using the word translation because that's a useful word in its own context but it has its own cultural context and it's too kind of specific for all the things that a lot of these words encompass. But while I talked about Elaine, I'd just like to share perhaps the really last stanza of Your Smile is a River for Arnie Elaine Lomas. I like to begin every stanza of this with her name and her status, her title, Waradjuri Yina of the Kalari. Annie Elaine Wiradjuri Yina of the Kalari, mother, grandmother, sister, auntie, elder, teacher, language custodian, who changes the world through small acts of kindness, who brings two cultures together in spirituality, whose smile is a river, ancient and deep, whose words will flow through generations to come, like the Kalara and the Marambija. They're her two really important rivers. Also something that comes through, I think, in a lot of these poems and comes through small acts. I know public face of black activism is quite different and I don't want to underrate people who do 
public activism and that sort of flag raising and things. But my auntie used to sometimes make a comment about public activists, particularly a lot of the men who spend a lot of time in front of cameras, who's cooking their dinner, who's babysitting the kids, and, you know, even more critical things when some of these guys are like going out in public, things like looking immaculate, like, okay, who ironed that shirt for you? These are very good questions, you know, that we should be all asking about activism, not just black activism. And where does activism really happen? And it happens in the small locale to begin with. Same with radicalism. And I think a lot of acts of radicalism go under the guise of conformism. Yeah, I understand what you mean. It's a notion that's very much captured across your work, I think. And speaking of your work, would you like to introduce and share one more poem from this collection to see us out? So I'll share a poem with you, which is called Bilajarang, Untranslated. I said I didn't have much language, but my grandmother did remember a few words. It was my responsibility to look after my grandmother in the afternoons when she was in her 80s. She was very sound of mind, but she was she was overconfident in her physical ability at 80 because she'd always been so physically active. She thought nothing of going and walking on a creek bank or something. And once she broke her ankle, so people didn't want her out wandering again, especially in winter. So, yeah, I used to sit with her to talk to her and entertain her and, and walk with her as well. So this is also a story about the power, of, a poem, a story about the power of memory about the other side of translation, about the difference between collecting and gathering. So Billa Durang, untranslated. You stop me in my tracks when I see you in the Grand Gallery of Evolution at the Musée Natural de Histoire Naturale on Rue Gofui Saint-Hilaire, a mythical place, so the citation says, where modernity meets history and science tells the story of great adventure. I trace you from top to toe and back again with my eyes among 7,000 species collected and displayed. Arinthicus, Anatinus, Phylum, Kadata, Class, Mammalia, Order, Monotremata, Australian platypus. On a river a million miles away where I walked as a child, you are Billadawang. Magan Hinawang, stooped with stick, black hair turned to ash, still walking the river, told me your name. From Mandalo Bridge to the Nangus floodplain, we'd watch you arc and dive your rippled story into the dark water. Dorita said every text remains in mourning until it is translated. And I wander through these display cabinets of butterflies and moths, pinterboards, reptiles marinating in jars of ethanol, birds and animals stuffed, splayed out and labelled in Latin behind glass, and I wonder... Are you not already known, Bilajuang, on country that birthed you, shaped you through lands and waters, 
manger through story. On the other side of this translation, a river somewhere will remember you or a mountain, a ridge, a plain, a gully or a creek will know your name. Bill along, it's your capture, you mourn, behind those glass eyes that stare out at me. And when I speak your name out loud, Billadawang, I give it back to you from the river where I first heard it, the river that still remembers you, free and untranslated. I love that poem. It's one of my favourites from the collection. Could you tell me a little bit more about the scene, the inspiration, if you would? I think this poem really asks who's the translation for and once again questions this whole notion that translation is always good. Just like questioning the whole notion that writing is the great emancipator. Yeah, it can be, but it can also be the great incarcerator. It's true. That's a painful lesson from history. But this collection, Gawamara, Gathering, confronts history's truths and projects quite a powerful beauty as well, I think, and I strongly recommend reading it. Thank you for reading your work and for speaking with us, Janine. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nico. Lovely to meet you. Have a good evening. And you too. Thank you. Thank you. Garamara Gathering is available via all reading stores and from our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also send it to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.